VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's do it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So for those young athletes here in the province heading down south to go to school to apply their trade, this is probably their last week in the province, so safe travels, good luck. I've mentioned that because I happened to run into young Abby Newhook returning to Boston College on Friday at a birthday party last night, so good luck to all. And stick with female hockey for a second. Way to go to Ryan Delaney and his team at the Delaney Hockey Female Development Program. They had a uh, camp last weekend held at the Conception Bay South Arena for girls ages 7 through 15. More than ever. So this is the second go-around. But more girls this year than last year. Good sign. Numbers for female hockey across the country are up, which is also very encouraging. But how about getting a chance to, you know, Ryan says, it's important to have as many female staff on the ice as possible, even though he put on the blades and got out there as well. But to get an opportunity to see and to hear from and get some tutelage from four-time Olympic gold medalist, Hockey Hall of Famer Jane Hefford, who they were lucky enough to bring in to be part of that hockey camp so bravo congratulations ryan and hopefully everyone who went to the camp got something from it and enjoyed the experience all right you want to talk about anything like that let's go you know full well if you listen to the program which i know you do is my fascination with speed and especially foot speed so every now and then when i see on this date in history something regarding usain bolt it kind of sticks in my mind sometimes i say it over the year so for the long while bolt was the fastest human on the planet now there's a young American who's breaking his records as a junior. His name is Arian Knighton. He's been shattering some of the records that Bolt also had as a junior, so it looks like the world's fastest human may indeed be a teenager coming out of the United States of America. So breaking records at the 200, under 20 seconds already as a teen. So anyway, pretty great. I often wonder, for sports watchers, you know, especially in football, for instance, where there's a playbook, and you get traded, and teams want to trade you as far away as they possibly can. Try not to keep in the division and I've often wondered how much internal knowledge do they bring with them when they move to their next team now there's all kinds of rules about proprietary information and they can't bring the playbook with you what's in your head is in your head and you share it with your new team if it's going to be helpful to them and consequently to you but there's a lawsuit happening now the New York Knicks have filed a lawsuit against the Toronto Raptors and Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and here's why They had a guy who was their analytics coach, their video coach. He was being wooed by the Raptors to come to town. And so during the negotiation process, he was downloading all kinds of files into his Gmail and sending them along, scouting files, different materials, play frequency reports, a prep book. And so the Nick Rockers are suing the Raptors and Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. And you know this got to happen all the time. People bring that in-house info with them when they move on. Okay, probably more important issues. We'll get to them now. All right. So for the first time since leaving his role as the chief of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, Joe Boland spoke up when he was a panelist at the Canadian Association of Police Governances, Governances annual conference that was held at the Delta. You know, there was some gray area around Boland's exit. And so when he spoke out for the first time, there was some pretty startling commentary offered by the former chief. So let's see. Quote, it was a concerted effort by several to push me out the door because I was holding people accountable and that I wanted to open up the RNC to include community into everything that we were doing. 
So there were some comments about, you know, and it was frustrating for Premier Fury to hear that former Chief Bowler says that there was some concerns led by the government versus what really felt to me like he was being pushed out in-house versus external efforts. Now, uh, Chief Boland or Joe, if you're listening, you want to chime in on this program this morning for chat. Love to have you on the show. So we know that the Royal Constabulary Association, which represents all the non-commissioned officers, some 380 of them, they sent out a poll, a questionnaire to the constable sergeants and staff sergeants, asking them whether to whether or not they had confidence in Boland's leadership. And you remember those poll results that came back in unbelievable numbers saying they did not have faith in Boland's leadership. So really quite something. And then to talk about the conversation regarding police accountability and transparency. Those are two words that we'll hear in every walk of life, whether it be in private business or government at all three levels, or yes, organizations like the RNC. And this is the concept of a civilian-led police oversight board. All right. What's a little bit disingenuous or curious, whatever the right word is, is that there's references consistently made to a report that was brought forward with some 26 recommendations from First Light, or First Voice, pardon me. And they indeed did recommend that there be a police service board or civilian oversight. It comes in many different forms, and it's been useful in different jurisdictions. But the issue there is that this is not new. This is not because of a report coming from First Voice. This has been something that's been decades part of the conversation. Now, it can indeed be a very cumbersome tool when you talk about the types of complaints and the frequency of complaints that will be lodged with, say, for instance, a civilian police oversight board. But what if done right? It's just another layer of protection for not only the general public, but I would suggest also for law enforcement. Look, when there's growing cynicism and skepticism about how law enforcement proceeds, the type of training they get, how they react to certain calls, whether it be domestic violence or mental health or folks who are addicted, you know, all the same stories we've been hearing. It's probably a really good idea. You would think that some of the most professional, dedicated, if not all of the most professional, dedicated members of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, they want to be able to walk around with their heads held high, not just to try to fall in behind some of the very bleak headlines, whether it be sexual assaults and some of the other concerns people have brought forward or the handling of evidence, whatever it is. If we have a different and an additional layer of comfort and investigative powers, with something like a uh, civilian-led oversight board, that's probably good for all hands. So they're looking at police governance legislation. That's the Minister of uh, Public Safety and Justice, uh, John Hogan, that this may be part of what's considered, but good. But this is not a new conversation. It's been very much couched as if, well, based on the first voice report, it's maybe something we should take a look at. There's really no argument or excuse for why we haven't been pursuing this a little bit more aggressively, a bit more in a timely fashion, because again, decades of conversations about exactly that. Why? Because this is something that's been happening for decades in other parts of the first world, including in Canada. So you want to take it on. Let's go. A story that absolutely gets lost in that shuffle, whether we talk about crime and punishment and health care and education, the shortage of different professionals and variety of these sectors. This story about the fact that there's some 99 vacancies in social work is absolutely a major part of this story. So these are numbers coming from the Department of Children, Seniors and Social Development. 16 unfilled positions in Labrador, 83 positions on the island of Newfoundland. The vacant positions has doubled in the last three years. Everyone's got this thought about who or what a social worker is, where they work. 
but their services are wide. They're in education, they're in healthcare, they're in justice and other arenas in the public sphere. So to know that so many vacancies persist is a major concern. We only hope it doesn't come to we told you so. And that would be remarks coming, for instance, from Jerry Earl, the president at NAEP. When we talk about a manageable core of workload, and you know, this is for everyone inside the systems of education, healthcare, and justice. If a normal work week for a social worker, and remember, some of the most difficult portfolios as a social worker might be in child protection, but of course, based on seniority, oftentimes we have very new graduates, of which apparently we're not graduating enough social workers from our own school of social work. But if people think that as a very difficult job, then, of course, if seniority allows you to move to a different facet of social work, you probably will. So, all right. If there's some 371 social workers in that particular department of children, seniors, and social development, the vacancies represents about 20%. It's absolutely enormous. So when you are getting attention to and support coming from a social worker, that may indeed see to changes in whether or not or the frequency with which you engage in crime, criminal justice, have issues with healthcare, issues with your education. So I don't know, again, like these are very complicated issues, but even if it's expanding more seats, attracting more people, doing what we can to recruit and retain a social worker, this kind of, this profession gets left a little bit behind in the type of importance as per social conversations, as per the public sphere of who we think are the most important people to bring into the fold. Because I guarantee you, 99 social worker vacancies is extraordinary. What does that mean for, core, uh, for workload? In a normal course of a 52-hour work week, juggling about 20 cases, apparently now juggling as many as 60 cases. So when we talk about 24-hour shifts for a nurse or a correctional officer or what have you, saying you cannot be on top of your game and do your very best work when you're worked to that extent, it must be absolutely humanly impossible to adequately juggle 60 cases because some of these will be extremely complicated with long family history, a bunch of moving parts, add in the paperwork required to be absolutely on top of your work and the reported nature of your work. 60 cases. I'm sure that if you speak to a social worker, like many professions here employed by the government, loathe to speak out too forcefully for the obvious reasons of retribution or potential problems they may create for themselves. But how can that possibly work? 60 cases. I don't imagine it's even humanly possible to do a good job with that sort of presence. Anyway, and apparently in the last couple of days, there's been lots of stories, personal stories about mental health and addictions of which social workers would play a role. There is a rally today, 2 p.m., in and around Confederation building on the steps to talk about what is absolutely a crisis. So sharing your stories is much more beneficial to people's understanding of who you are, where you're coming from, what happened to you and your family, versus just saying there's been X number of overdoses. There's X number of beds at Humberwood. There's X number of shortages here. There's a six-week assessment that you the personal story paints a much clearer picture, so thank you for sharing those particular stories, uh, specifically with Linda yesterday. Oh, yeah, and big thanks to Linda Swain and Tim Powers for sitting in while I took enough, uh, another couple of days to make for a four-day weekend. All right. I am perpetually confused with what the federal government thinks is their role, whether it be in guidance, support, funding or what have you regarding housing. It went from a shrug of the shoulders from the Prime Minister saying, well, it's provincial jurisdiction, technically not wrong, but there's a lot of federal policies that have led to housing concerns. It's absolutely demonstrably true. 
So when that's the case, and look, there will be some corners of the political spectrum that say the problem lies entirely with immigrants when that's just one component. But curiously, the new Minister of Housing, Sean Fraser, who used to be the Minister of Immigration, talking about the potential for the federal government to look at putting in a cap on international students. When people who have immigration concerns, you know, trying to attract newcomers to fill gaps, skilled trades, if we have to build 5.8 million homes to keep up with population growth by 2030, skilled trades is going to be important, whether it be with healthcare workers, innovators, folks who are in the tech sector, and many of those will absolutely be as a result of international students. If what people point to as potential problems for numbers and access to health care and a home and daycare and the rest, you know, family reunification, which is important. You needn't need want to be with your family. But a cap on international students, no matter who you are, who you vote for, the very best we can all hope for is that newcomers bring their drive, determination, their skills and their education to being part of the fabric of the country. So an international student is much more likely to have all of those types of skills and want to potentially stay, set up and set down roots here in the country and be part of dealing with all of the population growth issues. There's an economic upside, there's a societal upside to immigration, but looking at a potential cap on international students is really quite a bizarre starting point. And I don't know, I can't speak for the minister, but the stories that you read seems like that's where they're going to put some of the considerations about caps on newcomers. But strange stuff. And speaking of the housing of the federal government, apparently some experts quietly behind closed doors in their uh, caucus retreat on Prince Edward Island chiming in about some potential solutions and some guidance where the feds absolutely can and should play a role whether it be technically their position or not but no matter how you slice it to have a political calculation that says, well, it's not my fault. It can't point the finger at me as a federal cabinet minister and or the prime minister is just misreading the tea leaves. So you want to take it on. Let's go. And I mentioned access to daycare. There's a daycare early childhood educator update coming this morning at uh, 1130. Minister of Education, Crystal Lynn Howell, will be offering it. The hope is to add an additional 700 regulated childcare spaces this year. We have seen all the reports, whether it be for the Center for Policy Alternatives, talking about the childcare desert that many people in the province live in. The fact that there's only 14% of the daycare age children actually have access to a regulated daycare spot. And yes, of course, not every spot is a regulated one, but that's the one that people lean on sometimes when we talk about those numbers. But anyway, <laughs> you want to take it on? Let's go. So in the world of energy, and in this case, wind, hydrogen, ammonia energy, World Energy GH2, of course, have been very aggressive. Whether it be with MOUs that have been signed between that group and Germany for the provision of that fuel source, they've submitted their environmental assessment. Environmental assessments are a curious approach that's taken anyway, right? So now the government has to evaluate the merits of this enormous document, I tried to take a peek at it yesterday. It's 3,300 pages, and most of it, technologically speaking, way over my head. You know, they begin with phase one of 164 wind turbines, grows exponentially with their full three phases if they ever get to that point. The general public has until the 11th of October to react. What would be enormously helpful once again is whether it be the company 
Mr. Risley or technical advisors or somebody and or the minister responsible and or the premier can help it, help us boil it down to some bite-sized morsels so that we really firmly understand what this submission looks like and where the government may indeed send them back to the drawing board. But no surprise, World Energy GH2 really putting I guess pulling out all the stops to ensure that their model gets the traction that they think it deserves and the market that they think they can satisfy. And, of course, the question of what's in it for us is always a fair one if you want to bring that as part of A couple of quickies before we go. I don't know. Did Tim make mention of the Arts and Culture Center issue on Monday? Uh, he probably didn't because he didn't want to let the cat out of the bag. Family friend, John Crosby Perlin, now the Arts and Culture Center in St. John's, will be forever now known as the John C. Perlin Arts and Culture Center. I mean, he was no question a cultural ambassador. He was a member of the Order of Canada. He was a letter of cultural affairs for the province for quite a long time. He died at the age of 88. He was a key in driving the creation of the arts and culture centers across the province. And of course, the ACC built here in St. John's has been open since 1967. So congratulations to the family. The reason I mentioned that Tim maybe didn't bring it up, I don't know if he did or not, Dave, you can tell me, because his mother, Deb, spoke on behalf of the Perlin family with how chuffed and honored John Perlin would be uh, to know that he's been recognized in that fashion. Great stuff. And very quickly. So you don't know if this is all about dragging your heels until there's an election or whatever the case may be and the whole clamor about foreign interference into our elections. And it's not just in 19 and 21. It's prior to that. You know, there's been a series of missteps. And of course, this is very hyper-politically charged conversation. Opposition parties want to have a public inquiry. Now it looks like Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc is speaking with, indirectly speaking, with sitting judges as opposed to retired judges in working with opposition leaders to come up with what the framework would be, the terms of reference for a public inquiry, which as much as David Johnson says would be unnecessary, I think for the health of the country, we have to do it. So he can't speak directly to the judges themselves. So he has to work through Chief Justice Richard Wagner at the Supreme Court. But if this is something the government is going to do, and yes, you got to get it right, but let's do it sooner than later. You know, political expedience is, I think, the least of my concerns. For the hyperpartisan out there, the, the political fortunes of your party is, first and foremost, is paramount. But I think for the rest of us, just getting this done right, gleaning what we can, ensuring that all the protections required from foreign registry of uh, foreign lobbyists and any influence or affluence brought to bear. So if the minister's making this effort, look, I, what I will think out loud is I can't imagine anybody wanted to take it on. Because just look at the hyperventilating that took place when David Johnston, former governor general, was appointed to be the special rapporteur and the work that he did, even though he thought there was no need for public, inf uh, public inquiry because of all the intelligence that would still need to be shielded from the public eye. But add to it, Elizabeth May took the government's uh, offer up about the uh, security clearance to have a look at. And then she says, well, there was still so much of the intelligence she couldn't get a look at. So asking the clerk of the Privy Council and directly to the PMO, hey, if you want us to take this as an opportunity to see it, maybe tamp down some rhetoric, have a real understanding of who knew what when, maybe give her and everyone else who wants to take that security clearance offer a chance to see it all. We're on Twitter. We can see it all there. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show that requires your participation right after this. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number four and say good morning to a registered psychologist, Dr. Tanya Lentz. Good morning, Dr. Lentz. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. So this is a Twitter thread you tagged me on this morning, and I wanted to follow up with you. This mm-hmm. is about denying patients the right to have whatever type of treatment they choose, whether it be with respectful and or ethical treatment, spurred on by a phone call last week. So let's talk about decision-making, the capacity for, uh, capacity for decision-making on behalf of the patient. Walk us through some of the three main aspects you pointed out this mm-hmm. morning. Well, really, when we talk about capacity, it's essentially the ability to make decisions independently or without oversight. Um, and quite often, um, capacity is determined by a healthcare professional, and then a court determines competence, which is the other term that's associated with this. When we're looking at capacity, really what we're looking at is a person's ability to understand uh, the relevant information the specific situation that they're in, and then other basic information that they might need to make a a decision about that particular topic, as well as their ability to evaluate and weigh out any risks, um, any consequences of a particular decision, as well as any benefits from that particular decision. And then we're really looking at um, their ability to then communicate Um, whatever choices that they make on a relatively consistent or stable basis. Um, And what I mean by that is that when asked the same question, they're not answering different answers every single time we ask them. So we want to see some consistency there. And there's a difference in capacity for decision-making. Some of it might be a temporary issue, whether it be intoxication and, or as you point out, in a coma, or whether or not you want to uh, receive chemo treatment as a cancer patient. So talk us through the ethics, because Mm -hmm. for the doctor, psychologist, or other clinician, you might have very distinct concerns about denying, or pardon me, for a patient to not take the offer treatment. Where does that ethical line draw? Because, you know, the do-no-harm would be a guiding principle for most medical doctors, how do you make that ethical decision? Because if you know what's right for the person, but they they refuse it, is that the end of the road? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I think we need to be careful about that know what's right um, piece. And I think that's where okay. sometimes we go awry is because we may feel like a certain treatment is the best way to go, um, but that may not be what's right for that person. And so... It's a lot about respecting that person um, and their right to make a decision as to whether or not, say, for example, they want to go through uh, chemotherapy. We know chemotherapy has some negative side effects. Um, It's not always 100% successful. Um, And the person may choose not to do that route. Um, Even if, as a healthcare professional, we might think, oh my goodness, that's so the like choice that I would make if I were you, but you're not them, right? And that's why we really um, want to make sure that patients understand all the risks and they have a chance to talk through any potential kind of long-term consequences of a particular decision, as well as any benefits of that particular decision. Because for that person, they may feel that uh, quality of life is more important in that particular situation. So it's one of those things that we want to make sure that we don't go with what we think is right, um, because that's the mentality that unfortunately led to a lot of institutions for people, for example, with mental illness, um, led to residential schools. So we have to be really careful about thinking that we know what's right for that particular person if they have the capacity to make decisions themselves. 
And even if someone doesn't have the legal capacity, their needs and desires also need to be taken into account by whomever is the designated decision maker. If is probably the most powerful and infuriating word in the English language, because it just mm-hmm. means so many different things. Yep. When there's the consideration, and I'm, of course, not a healthcare professional, so I have no idea how these mm-hmm. conversations go or how people are taught about ethics and respectful treatment, but when the there's a question about harm to yourself, harm to others. Again, completely understand your uh, comments about, you know, I know best as a healthcare professional. How does that get factor in with harm to others, harm to yourself? In terms of if someone has a specific plan to harm someone else or a very specific plan to harm themselves, then we do have to act um, to prevent that harm in that moment. Um, And when I say that, it doesn't mean that, say, um, for example, if someone has suicidal ideation, so they have thoughts of potentially wanting to die, um, that's not the same as someone having a very specific plan that they plan to go carry it. Okay? So it has to be a very specific plan, um, and then we may be able to help them get into a situation where, say, they're getting treatment or, say, we prevent harm to another person from occurring. But we don't have the right to automatically assume that they can't make decisions in that particular case. When there is a distinct cognitive problem, Mm -hmm. how is it adjudicated when someone else needs to be brought into the the decision-making process? And who's that person? Is that normally the next of kin or the person who's, you know, please call in case of emergency, this person? How does that play Mm -hmm. out? Because that is unfortunately a big part of what we're seeing inside the entirety of the healthcare system. Right. So, and, you know, certainly I do some of these um, types of assessments myself. And really what we do is we want to assess um, someone's overall functioning. How do they function on a day-to-day basis? Are they able to make kind of small decisions when they do make them? Um, what are they weighing out? Things like that, um, as well as just general problem solving and so on. And then we want to look um, if there is going to be a legal guardian. Um, is that person fully informed of what that person's needs are? Are they fully informed of how to go about doing decision making? Because we also want to make sure there's no exploitation of that person. Um, and then we want to make sure that there is um, some guidelines around how they have to make decisions while including that person. This is a structural question. So how does it affect your day-to-day dealings with patients, whether it be with the shortage of psychologists, whether it be lack of access to timely addictions treatment, whether it be continuity of care based on health care shortage or bed shortages or all of these structural issues, how does that impact your decision-making on respectful and ethical treatment day over day? You know, it's a hard question, honestly, um, because I think myself and many other practitioners face a lot of strain because, you know, we're worried about patients. Um, We're worried that they're not getting access to treatment um, when they need it and when they're um, wanting to get treatment. You know, we have people call every day about uh, needing services and there's only so much capacity for those of us who are here and, you know, Try not to um, say that the government's not doing what they need to do, but I feel like it hasn't been as open of a discourse as I think there needs to be. Um, Even in terms of like the road to recovery report, there's a lot of concerns with it, but we haven't had any answers on that. And I think unless we actually have a good plan that includes patients, that includes clinicians, I don't think we're going to get very far with that. 
inside the world of psychology, and I think throughout the mental illness, mental, mental wellness, mental health, how do we even, you know, when we talk about data and what it means and how we should uh, uh, absorb the data or understand the data, how do we start something like the conversation regarding what equals success? Because, you know, inside continuous care and symptoms waning, improving life and the, uh, the, your state of being or whatever the right phrases are here, how do we even measure success in this realm? Because if I have a surgery, have physio, back on my feet, then I can measure success in certain parameters, wait times included. So how do we measure it in mental health? Well, I think honestly, one of the first steps is actually designing a system that can record the data that we're looking for. Right now, we don't really have that system. It's really piecemeal. Um, so I think probably starting there and having people who understand data analysis design that system. So working with some of um, you know the really talented um, researchers that we have in this province to create a system that will track the data that we're looking for, I think it's probably step one. Then looking at things such as patient satisfaction outcomes. How happy were you with the treatment? Were there things that we could improve? And then actually improving them. Um, you know, certainly looking at things like wait times, but actually having accurate wait times, um, because that has certainly been um, a bit of discourse on social media from a number of different patients stating that sometimes the wait times that are provided aren't accurate. Um, and I have to admit, um, from my patients' experiences, they haven't been um, within those ideal timelines either. So I think we need to be really honest about what the data tells us um, and then start tracking some of these things around even staff satisfaction with the service. So as a staff member, what are the things that we could be doing better with this program? Because the staff are also really aware of all the problems within programs and ways that we could potentially fix them. So getting that and then doing real-time updates to programs is really important. Um, certainly I've been part of other programs that have done that as part of me monitoring them for research projects. And then we gave feedback, they made changes and the program improved over time. And I think that's really a great way of making it so that programs integrate both patients and clinicians feedback to keep improving. Last one before I let you go. Mm-hmm. With, you know, infrastructure, and the government would point to the new Center for Mental Health and Addictions on the Health Sciences Complex. Do you think that, you know, inside of nuts and bolts and bricks and mortar, that's simply that. That's your surroundings. That's not the delivery model. Are you hopeful that the delivery model and the things that you just pointed to and articulated there will be part and parcel of this new facility? Because just building new, healthier, comfier surroundings doesn't change how we deal with mental health and addictions. I think you just said it really lovely there. Um, healthcare is not buildings, it's people, um, it's providers, and it is the model of care. Um, and at this point, honestly, I don't know um, because we haven't really had a lot of information provided. I had hoped that the Road to Recovery Report would provide some of that information, but it was lacking in that. Um, for me, I really think you know there's no ego in healthcare, and I think we need to start really humbling ourselves and checking with patients. Are we doing a good job? And if we're not, how can we do it better? Because I think that's honestly the only approach that really is going to work going forward. 
As usual, I really appreciate your time this morning, Dr. Lentz. Thanks a lot. Anytime. Take care. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Tanya Lentz is a registered psychologist. Yeah, a lot there. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Christy Pete's in the queue. Christy and I have talked over the years about caring cards for seniors. They're expanding the program. You can imagine nothing puts a smile on your face, quite like getting an unexpected greeting card for your birthday or World Seniors Day or whatever the case may be. They were talking drinking water, police oversight, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go back to the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Christy Pete. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. I just want to say thanks once again for having me on your show. Um, the reason for my call today is that I'd like to share with your listeners some exciting news about our Caring Cards program. Sure. Um, for those listeners who are unfamiliar with our project, I'd like to just provide a brief backstory of how it all began. Uh, we initially began providing handmade birthday cards to several seniors' homes at the height of the pandemic. and. Our goal was just to show seniors how much we care about them and how much they matter. Um, I'm proud to say that as of last week, we're now providing handmade cards to 35 long-term care homes in St. John's and surrounding areas and rural areas within the eastern region. Uh, The second thing I want to share is that um, after months of consideration and collaboration, we've decided to expand our program. So this opportunity will allow us to expand our services and reach new populations of people that can avail of our support, while still maintaining our current role of spreading smiles and encouragement to seniors in our community. So we're currently offering cards within hospital settings, and we've seen the need for people who are struggling with like physical health challenges and also mental health challenges. So after, you know, some time and some support from a lot of our volunteers, we're not only providing uh, handmade birthday cards, but thinking of you cards now as well. So we're really excited to see where things are going to go with this. So our new name is now Caring Cards NL. So that reflects the expansion of the base of our support. Um, So, Patty, I'd really like to thank um, numerous people that have made this possible from the schools to our donors, um, MHA Craig Party, he's played a big role in helping support what we do. And really, the dedication of our volunteers to our program and our vision has been unparalleled. They really are the heart of our program, and we could not have made this possible without their support. So do you have the volunteer horsepower for this expansion, or are you still trying to get, bring more people into the fold to make sure you can accommodate the moves you're making? Um, we currently do at the moment, but again, in order to con- continually expand, we are going to need support from the community. Um, we're really busy this summer hosting card events in seniors' homes. That's gone really well. Uh, we've partnered with the town of Torbay, Northeast Soccer, and even events within my own neighborhood. So it's, it's all gone so well, and we've received so much support. Um, if I could share a really heartwarming story with your listeners. Well, that's what I was going to ask that. you, so go right ahead. So recently, um, I heard about a man who has been struggling with a terminal illness, and of course, it really played on my mind, so I said, I wonder if I can contact him and just see if he would like some handmade cards from our program. And um, so I reached out. I was able to get in contact with him. And, of course, he was interested. 
and myself and one of our amazing volunteers, we created several uh, handmade cards for him. Uh, both he and his loved ones were so appreciative and so moved by our kind gesture. It really just brought me back to why I became involved in this project and why so many of us are so passionate about what we do. Uh, another uh, man I came in contact with, Patty, that I've been speaking with uh, for over a year now, he's a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor. So I've made connections with him, and we've shared information back and forth. And uh, my son, actually, who's been heavily involved in our program, he actually sent him a handmade card just to thank him for sharing his story. And he's been so involved uh, with so many communities, and he he was actually in his 80s before he shared his story. So we just wanted to thank him for all that he's done. And, um, yeah, so those are some really exciting things that are happening. So in order for us to move forward, really, and broaden the scope of who we support, we really need to rely on the community donors and more volunteers to help make cards, deliver cards, donate supplies, and even volunteer at our card-making events. And that has been such an uplifting experience. We have seniors making cards for other seniors. So I go in and, you know, and other volunteers have gone in, and they're so excited to take part in this. So I think there's something so special about seniors making cards for other seniors. And we've also had children make cards for seniors, seniors make cards for children. So, I mean, it's just been incredible. I think it's brilliant. Uh, right from the get-go when you and I first started speaking about this program, you knew full well it was going to be well-received uh, by folks who get one of these very kind cards. I'm glad to hear you're able to uh, expand, and now you're known as Caring Cards NL, reflective of the fact that you are indeed making it bigger than the small, or pardon me, the smaller footprint that you once had. So keep up the great work, Christian, and appreciate your time this morning. So if I could just say as sure. well, Patty, um, we're just trying to engage new members. So if anyone's interested, we're going to be hosting a free card-making workshop in September. So if they would like to reach out at me to our Facebook page, Caring Cards NL, or also uh, my email, Christy underscore P at Hotmail.com. So they could reach me through either one of those ways. Terrific. Good to have you on the show this morning, Christy. Stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Patty. My pleasure. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Here you go. That's a nice program. Uh, let's go to line number three. Ralph, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning Ralph. to you. Calling. Uh, still, still fighting for clean water out here in St. Brides. We got a, an update from our MHA, Sherry Gamble, Welsh, that their money has been issued for uh, to get the dam fixed. But the problem is, is what they're going to do with it. The first thing they're going to do is put in a new road. Like, you know, that should have been in 60 years ago, not now. And then they're going to put two screens in the dam to collect the mud, and then they're going to put a new front in it for a spillover. That's phase one. Phase two, they're going to put a coronation system in. I don't know where, what, why they're going to do it, because the, the water is not going to be any better. And the people of St. Bride is going to be paying a lot more taxes once they do that, water tax. And the problem is, people don't realize what a chlorine really tastes like and smells like. Go into a swimming pool in a motel, you'll find out, or go to Toronto and get a glass of water if you want to know what chlorine tastes like. Your Sunday dinner won't taste as good, or neither will your coffee. Yeah, it's all about the amount of chlorine, uh, and chlorinated water systems is not new. And you're, So you're suggesting that they shouldn't add that level of treatment to the water? Well, the dam, I was up, my wife and I went for a walk two weeks ago to the dam. 
the dam really should be knocked down and, and, and put somewhere else because the condition that dam is in, I don't think anything has been done to that dam in 60-some years. Okay. You can't even get near it. I don't know how they're even sampling the water to find out if the water is fit to drink. Like, it, you know, it, it's, I don't know, it, it's it's too bad to work on. Like, my, my years ago, they had screens in there, and my uncle was one of them. They used to go up every so often, take the screens out, and beat them out on the rocks to get, because their water shut off, and to get the water running again. So they're going to do the same, try the same system again that was in there, and it didn't work then. They took the screens out and threw them away. So, you know, I, I don't I don't see where they're, they're going to make, you know, we're trying, I, I've been talking to Sherry Gamble-Welsh, our MHA, and uh, we've emailed her, and we're trying to get a meeting or someone to come out from the government, I don't care who it is, to, so we can show them what they're working with, what they're going to throw $700,000 away on, because it's, it's, not going to, it's not going to benefit us, because even when the dam has been repaired, where are we going to get water? Right now, we're, the water is filthy. They went up and flushed all the, all the fire hydrants out so we get clean water and then filled them up with the same dirty water. So how did they think that was going to work? I don't know if it was you, but I've been sent uh, some postcards in particular with these photos of the water in St. Bride's, and then I got some pictures over the weekend with the uh, color of the water coming out of the taps out in Botwood. I mean, we know just how many places are still under boil order advisories here in the province, which is staggering. And the amount of money that's going to be required, because outside or inside of the 275 incorporated municipalities, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 100 plus, maybe 150 that have had either short-term boil order advisories some have had them in place for years, if not decades. It's, it's unbelievable. It's something I take for granted, right? I flick on the tap where I live. I get nice, tasty, clear water. And, of course, that is the exception, not the rule here in this province, unfortunately. The problem is I can't get a meeting with uh, our MHA, uh, Sherry Gamble-Welsh, or Ken. I've been trying to find Honorable Ken McDonald. Someone to come out. I, I told him I'd go to them and have a meeting with them and explain to me what the, they're trying to spend the money on because... Everyone in St. Bryce that has had anything to do with that dam know that that dam is in a mud hole. There's probably six feet of mud in it right now. We were up and looked at it. You, you only can get, you know, 50 feet to it, and then it's a downhill. There's nothing but rocks and shrubs, and there has been nothing done to that dam since I left home in 67. It's cleaned up around us. I appreciate the heads up. If you're ever lucky enough to get a meeting, whether it be with someone who's a actual water treatment specialist with the government or anyone beyond your member of the House of Assembly, you're welcome back on the show. We tried, and we even sent an email to the Premier trying to get, and I spoke to his secretary personally, and we still can't get no results out of it. They won't even give us a council meeting. We can't get nine goals here, but... I appreciate the time, Ralph. I'm sorry to hear it continues. Right, me on. I'll talk to you later. Anytime, Ralph. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's take that break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, police oversight. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Gwen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I wanted to uh, talk about uh, the police force chiefs. Um, as you may recall, I was given participant with standing at the Hughes inquiry. That was in 89, 34 years ago. And that gave me uh, the permission by the judge uh, that could, where I could question people on the witness stand. And um, one of the suggestions that came out during the inquiry was blackmailed by diabolical police officers to the chiefs 
of police. Um, <clears throat> now, you mentioned, I, I heard on the news this morning about uh, Chief Boland, and, well, actually, all chiefs were pushed out before him as well. And the cause of it was usually the diabolical behavior of a certain police member. And for um, Chief Boland leadership, having no confidence in it, that's the cause of it and all the other chiefs because uh, they were given a terrible time. They were... You know what diabolical behavior does to a person? Does it the person who is diabolical or the person that is on the receiving end? What do you mean? Uh, the person who um, is not... Well, the person who is the member uh, trying to... Um, I suppose blackmail the chief into doing things over the years uh, that they wanted done, and if they didn't do it, uh, they would uh, bring forward to the chief a, a lot of trouble where he would either be fired or whatever else. They're, like I say, it's a very diabolical behavior to the chief. So are you assigning this to one person? Um, well, if whoever that person may be, over the years, ever since, for instance, uh, during Chief Pittman's time, um, that was a really horrific time for uh, police members because none of them were really looked into as to what their qualifications were. They were just, some cases, picked off the street and put a uniform on, and that was it. And over the years that got a little bit more improved upon but it's still in the in the force right now for the past oh i'd say 10 years they have uh either gone into retirement the people who were of diabolical and always will be behavior um and basically um the last chief that was there which was uh Chief Boland, he had to put up with an awful lot of things to try and get in place some of the things I suspect he was talking about at where the meeting that was there. I wasn't at it at the time. And for him to be given a no confidence in leadership um, doesn't speak correctly because a chief can only do what he's permitted to do. And this is why now when you look at um, this inquiry that uh, is taking place or to take place, um, the chief should have the ability to um, reprimand somebody who has done something wrong as far as a member of the police force has. But doesn't the chief already have that ability? Yes, but... Are they permitted to use it with some of these diabolical people? But permitted by who? I'm, I think I'm just maybe missing the ultimate point here. So you're saying that one or two or a collection of officers had that much clout and sway over the rank and file that if the chief was to hold them accountable to punish them for whatever, with whatever tool available, that that would be the demise of the chief? Is that the basic calls and outs of the story here? Yes, over over the years, yes. Granted, as uh, a lot of these diabolical behaviors have left the force or were fired or 
well, we we still have some of them still there, but at least uh, it's being, uh, I don't know, (laughs) there's less of them, put it that way. So to have no power in certain places, you know, when one bad person, bad apple, all the all the apples eventually die off. It, it there's just no power. Therefore, you, he had the chief has the power, but he's not allowed to use it. It's like a catch twenty two scenario. Well, is it he's not allowed to, or in your as to what you're describing? And I don't know who these this person or people are. Is that they simply choose not to use it? Not that they can't, because there's a long way between, you know, buck stops here. I'll take my knocks. I'll put up with the rank and file. I'll put up with the uh, political and the public pressure and do what I think is right. So, do you think things have improved there? Because yeah, they have improved. Thank okay. goodness. And they're improving as each year goes by, because a lot of these people who were never, ever, uh, I don't know, prepped properly um, as to what their their jobs were, and um, if they were, you know, if they had done something wrong, and the chief questioned what they were doing and and, uh, disciplined them, they they could you know they wouldn't obey and they would go amongst other police officers that uh, were good police officers trying to get them on their side i mean it was a circular thing that was disgusting and thank god most of it is gone today but uh, chief boland has had still been exposed to it like a lot of the other officers, like a lot of the other chiefs were. It, it seems an odd choice that anyone at the helm would make. I mean, let's just say someone that's got all their years of service put in, they are fully pensionable, and there's a real high watermark to go out on as a chief by doing what that person maybe should or does consider the right thing because pushback from the rank and file goes away when you submit your papers. So if someone wanted to pull the mask off, like uh, like the chief sounds like Joe Boland when his comments were quite clear at this uh, when he was a panelist with this uh, Canadian group of police governance, that if he thought that that was something available to him, he would have done it. It certainly sounds like he'd be more than willing to do it, so I'm not sure how he no, compares to No, he was to willing to do it. He wanted to get it done. But, but he didn't, though, so I don't know how those two topics jibe. He was willing to and wanting to, but he didn't, so which one because is it, I guess? I guess you, I'm, making, I'm not making myself clear enough, I can tell. So I'll say it this way. Uh, he had a lot of good plans set up, and he was about to put them into place. But then all of a sudden, uh, some of these people with the diabolical behavior, um, they're very, they, they have no conscience, put it that way. And it doesn't matter who they harm to, to get their own way. And since I am not in the police force, I wouldn't have known what tactic they used at that point, and the chief would not be permitted to talk about it to the public. It would make it look bad for the police force. It's all politics. Well, just about everything we see and feel and touch and smell is politically charged on some level. Uh, I I appreciate the time, Gwen. Very quickly, I'll let you have the last word because I'm late for the news. Okay. 
Anyway, I'm uh, I, I'm just calling in about that because I don't think any of the chiefs in the past had deserved what they got and made to look good uh, because now they were going to retire when they didn't want to retire. But that was what was given to them from higher up, whichever whatever that means. Um, so it's it's a nasty topic. But it, since it's starting to come out in the news, um, this should have been looked at, like I said, 34 years ago from the Hughes inquiry because it was a suggestion and it was placed in, in the books. So uh, I'm glad that this is out in the open and somebody somewhere of authority is going to uh, put it into place. But that's basically I'm looking at what the police, police chiefs had to endure over all these years. I appreciate the time this morning, Gwen. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Uh, you too. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see here. Let's take a break for the news. When we go back, there's a couple of callers here in the queue. I uh, appreciate your patience. There's one who wants to talk about CBD oil and for seniors. And then Wayne wants to talk about mental health and addiction services. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, how are you today? Thanks. Doing great today, thanks. How are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. Uh, I wanted to speak about uh, CBD oil uh, that's derived from the cannabis plant. Yep. Uh, uh, and how it it's beneficial to those who are suffering from severe pain, disabilities and such, especially when you're a senior. Um, are you familiar with it yourself? I am, yeah. I mean, it's about 40% of the plant's extract, you know, versus smoking what people will call getting high on weed with the THC component. The CBD is vastly different. I actually know some people who take it for exactly as you described, dealing with fatigue, diarrhea, uh, appetite, chronic pain management. So, yeah, it seems to have been very beneficial for some. It might not work for all, but it does for some. No. Well, it works for me. Good. And, uh, I can tell you that it. Uh, I was a bit skeptical at the time because, you know, years ago uh, the marijuana plant was uh, a scone down, and it was uh, actually it was against a lot of users. Now it's um, legalized the same as alcohol or whatever. So I delved into the fact about actually I had to find out what CBD oil was and how it works. Found out that it was a a plant-based thing uh, as compared to, say, a drug that was given to you by a doctor that could control pain and uh, would help with joint or whatever. But uh, when I was using uh, drugs itself, like uh, painkillers and such, and they, uh, I found that uh, I was a bit logy. I was a bit uh, down. I was a bit tired. My legs were wobbly. I had severe pain, but uh, the majority of the, the pills that I was taking that were given to me by a doctor for the same purpose uh, that I um, take in this stuff now uh, was to relieve pain. Because let's face it, when you're in your 70s and you you want a, a good quality of life, you want to be able to move mobility-wise, and you don't want to be uh, in pain constantly, 24-7, and uh, I found out with taking the pills, all I was doing was providing a drugstore um, 
ample monies uh, to give me pills uh, seven days a week, uh, thirty, you know, for thirty days, probably get a supply for a uh, whole year. And at the end of the the year, uh, I was in this. I was still in the same boat. <clears throat> There's all kinds of ways to get CBD. You can get it in food, drink, and gummies and capsules. And, it, you know, yeah. it doesn't work for everybody. I, again, I'm nowhere close to a medical yeah. professional, but we all have something that's called an endocannabinoid system. And it treats yeah. those CBD capsules or food or drink differently. But, yeah, like most things, there's been some hesitancy amongst some doctors to prescribe cannabis-related products. But, of course, for some, that it absolutely works. But this should always be a consistent consideration that and the conversation you have with your doctor because people can find great benefit from it and that's all we're trying to do here and this is very natural when compared to other pharmaceuticals so it's straight from the plant well the reason one of the reasons i want to bring it up is that i i know several people who are seniors who are in seniors homes who uh, are in the same boat i am who have horrific pain and uh, because of surgeries or because of arthritis and because they're not mobile. I I know people that uh, they get up and they say, here you go, here's your pills, take your pills, and the next thing you know, they're asleep. <laughs> you know, I don't know, they're not mobile, uh, they don't have a good quality of life. Since I've been doing this myself, uh, on my own, I have uh, have a better appetite my uh, pain is deteriorated quite a bit. I'd say about sixty-five percent. How's it impacted I'll your sleep? More. Oh, perfect! Yeah. You can sleep like a lot. You know, and uh, I was skeptical in the beginning because I was scared to death about oh, getting high as a kite and all this stuff. You know, but uh, when you read up about the uh, cannabis itself, this oil that they're talking about, the CBD. Uh, they uh, they take the THC out of it, the stuff that makes you high. Yeah, that's right. I mean, sort of like drinking. you can have sort something like designated drinking. CBD that has less than 3% THC. Uh, there is some out there with zero, but there is some out there with up to three. Yeah, and yeah. it's sort of like drinking uh, non-alcoholic beer. You know, but uh, it, I don't know. But what I'm finding is that uh, in regards to seniors' homes, and we get regards to the government, the most of these drugs, uh, this thing now, like uh, that, uh, provide you with this stuff over and above, uh, per, you know, personal people who run these these um, stores that give it out. The government itself uh, is responsible for giving out medical marijuana. But when you, uh, when I asked my friends that were in the homes and stuff. They said, oh, we can't have that. They won't let us. <laughs> you know, why not? Well, they won't. Yeah, it's unregulated for the most part. Um, yeah, but so again. I don't understand it. I really don't understand why uh, the government itself, who, when the uh, Canadian government itself has found that uh, this stuff works and people don't have to get on, like Oxycontin, morphine, painkillers and stuff like that that get into your system and a lot of people you know can get addicted to this and usually after a while when I was reading up on it this stuff uh, is non-beneficial to you as you grow older because uh, your body gets used to it and it just wears it off 
But uh, uh, I don't know if this stuff is going to wear off, but I know for a fact I get more mileage, so uh, uh, mobility-wise, I'm uh, more alert. Um, I have uh, my, you know, my taste buds and stuff with regard to food and stuff like that. And uh, when I ask my friends who are in the same boat or in homes or whatever or living by themselves, um, you know, they say, well, I don't want to try that. You know, but the government won't come out and say, you know, have you tried this? You know, have you done this? You know, if this doesn't work for you, why don't you try this? And when I, as a matter of fact, last week, Patty, I was in contact with the government Department of Health, and they said, well, we don't uh, regulate that uh, or anything. We don't go into, um, you know, singing pads or well, St. Luke's or whatever and say, listen, how is your pain? Uh, dress show. Uh, are you still on medication, or would you like to try this? This is new, but I think they're afraid to do that because the majority of doctors that run these, uh, you know, like they have doctors in these homes, they rather you know shove a pill in you, you know, than uh, try something new. I saw this thing on CNN uh, last week with Anderson Cooper. He had an hour-long show. He went from. Eastern uh, Canada, right to India, and they showed how this um, cannabis oil CBD has affected seniors uh, in, from from coast to coast. You know. Yeah, absolutely. The, and, and how people uh, okay. how people have changed, how people have uh, gotten out of wheelchairs, how people have uh, you know are, are more active. And they live longer. And by the way, uh, it's cheaper uh, for the uh, individual money-wise because they don't have to rely on pills and medication. Yeah, it's it's not a cure for anything, but it's a, certainly no, can help no, manage no. symptoms. Uh, I'm glad it's working for you, caller. And for those out there, there's some stigma attached with cannabis-related products for some, but CBD is pretty non-habit-forming, it's pretty innocuous. It does have benefits, whether it be for your arthritis and or uh, pain management. There's a variety of things that have possible improvements for your sleep, so there's a lot to it. I'm glad you called this morning. I'm off to the break. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks well, for taking my call. My pleasure. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Wayne, you stay right there to talk about mental health and addiction services. Then we're going to find out what the Ocean Bridge program is. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Wayne. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Calling from the beautiful town of Beta Spears. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Patty, I like to talk a bit about mental health. Patty, I'm a mental health patient in the old self. Okay. I listened to Linda show there yesterday morning, and coming up to noon there, there were three callers caught in, and one of them really touched my heart, Pat. This one guy went to the hospital with suicidal thoughts and couldn't get no help to send him home. And his mom said a few days after they found him hanging from a beam along himself. Which this is 2023 now. This stuff should not be going on anymore, Patty. And it, and in 2019, Patty, I had pretty well the same incident, Patty. I went to the emergency in Grand Falls, suicidal thoughts, cold sweats, anxiety. Told the doctor I wanted to be admitted in that hospital. This was 8th of October. I said, "Man, you got to admit me in this hospital. I'm uh, suicidal." He sent me old Patty with 90 pills. Uh, that was 8th of October and 10th of October, Patty. I took all those pills. 
and tried to commit suicide. But luckily, I was found quick enough. So what type of supports or services are you getting now, Wayne? I'm getting good support now, Bailey. I went into relapse there in June. I, was, I just had an hospital. Now I spent the full month in hospital this time. I had the best doctor I think I could ever get, and the nurses, I had really good support this time. And they admitted me that as soon as I went to the admitting room that night, they admitted me in. And so, and so for continuing support, so do you have a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor for ongoing support? Because some of these, some of these circumstances or issues, they can be managed, but they might not necessarily go away. So what's the continuity of care look like? I got an update now, Pat, up, uh, follow up now with my doctor another, another few weeks, I guess. And one o'clock today, I got a meeting here in St. Helens with the counselor. I'm, I'm doing counseling. I will be doing counseling for another while, for sure. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear you got the supports in place and the ongoing counseling because it's a, I don't know what the right word is here, but it's a, it's a constant. It doesn't necessarily go away. People will deal with it in one form or another. Hopefully it you know, it's manageable and they get that type of care they need in the long term. And I'm glad you're one of them, Wayne. Would you like to tell us anything else? Yes, Patty. Uh, my advice to the people who think that we're foolish or, or call us crazy, my only advice to them, Patty, is I hope and pray to God that they never had to find out what mental health is. It's a horrible disease. It's the same as cancer. It's the same as diabetes. But it is a horrible disease. It sure is, and it deserves more conversation and personal stories because we can talk about the stats until the cows come home, but hearing from people directly, whether it be they themselves or a loved one, is dealing with a mental illness and the type of service they get or some of the shortcomings, we have to talk about it, and we will on this program, that's for sure. Yes, I got to commend you guys. In the last few months, you guys have been promoted very much, for sure. I, we really feel like we have to, and that's a responsibility, I think, and we're going to keep it up, Wayne. So we appreciate your personal story, and you're always welcome. Right on, Patty. I was a 60-year-old, first time ever calling. I figured I might be a little bit nervous, but I wasn't too bad. No, I think you were great, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, sir, very much. You have a good day now. You too, Wayne. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. There we go. Good stuff. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Melissa Aguilera. She's an Ocean Bridge Manager Atlantic with OceanWise. Good morning to Melissa. You're on the air. Hello, buddy. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) Let's go right into Ocean Bridge. What is it? Sure. So Ocean Bridge is a program... uh, Uh, led by OceanWise. OceanWise is the organization, a global conservation organization on a mission to protect and restore the world's ocean. And our main purpose is to inspire and empower people by turning knowledge of the ocean into action for the ocean. So we have uh, different programs uh, and uh, all of them provide hands-on service experiences centered around ocean conservation that fosters a network of ocean lovers and leaders across Canada. It's remarkable how little we know about the world's oceans. So give us an example of looking at an awareness program that actually leads to a specific project. Can you repeat the question, please? I was just saying, you know, we know remarkably little about the ocean. So when we talk about awareness campaigns, give us an example of where the awareness campaign and whatever amount of weeks that they spend together collaborating leads to a specific project. Sure. 
So when they come actually to the to the program, they don't need to have a specific project in mind. So our program specialists are uh, people that are going to help them and guide them to actually create those local projects uh, that uh, align more with the needs of their own communities. Uh, for example, uh, last week we were in Halifax and we uh, did an outreach uh, event at the waterfront of Halifax where we also invited all the other partners that also had the opportunity to present their own initiatives as well. So are we talking about things like pollution, and whether that be plastic or otherwise, and is it beach cleaning, or are we talking about different water service projects? Or just, just a couple of examples to help wet the whistle of those listening to the show that they might want to be interested in being involved if they're within the age parameters of, I believe, is 19 to 30. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, for example, when you come to the program, you can organize a shoreline cleanup, for example. When they come to the program, they don't have to have a size background, so it can be anything. I would say some some youth uh, have created, like, uh, local photo exhibitions, for example. It can be also, as you said, organizing a local shoreline cleanup as well to, uh, to teach people actually also how to make an audit of all this garbage that they are taking out of the, of the ocean to actually see also for the solutions about this, right? Because uh, it's not just about collecting this, but also about doing something about the source of the problem. So if we're talking about creating the next wave of ambassadors or conservationists, who are they exposed to to give them more information, to put them on that path, you know, whether it be inside of workshops or special speakers or what have you? Yeah, sure. So when, uh, as I said, when it comes to the program, there is an online component in which we offer different um, uh, workshops in which they can learn directly from uh, scientists, marine conservation scientists, and uh, we also offer them... um, just give me one second. Uh, immersing land-based uh, learning journeys, which are in person, and they are uh, in uh, last year actually the one that we organized was in Grosscorn, and uh, they got to experience and to learn more about the local issues, indigenous knowledge as well. And uh, yeah, that was pretty much. <laughs> How should we talk about plastics? Because we see the swirling mounds of plastic and other garbages in different seas and oceans in the world. We know somewhere in the neighborhood of 9 or 10% of plastic in Canada is recycled. Much which is not recycled ends up in the waterways, which could be not only the big uh, uh, material that you see holding your six-pack of beer together, but down to the microbeads, which ends up in the food chain. It's in our food system. It's just something that people might not pay much attention to, but the plastic in the oceans is becoming a problem beyond climate change, beyond uh, heated ocean temperature. It's part of the food chain now. So how should we be thinking about and talking about plastic? Sure. I would say that uh, we need to pay attention more to the local actions that we do on an everyday basis. Uh, I'm not the expert of that specific uh, subject uh, within our program, but you are more than welcome to to visit our website, ocean.org, in which you can find all the information that you may need for actually make an audit of the things that you do in your everyday life. So like that, you can actually feel that you are having an impact on all these big problems that sometimes we feel overwhelmed about it because we don't know what to do or, you know, 
And uh, yeah, when you come and be are part of the OceanWise community by organizing our shoreline cleanup for yourself as well, you we offer all the tools actually that you need to organize one in your neighborhood. So uh, we actually invite you to come to the website and learn more about all the things that you can do in your own community and also having your own background. And uh, yeah. I appreciate the time. So is the, uh, this particular program, is it seasonal when more people are more likely to have time to collaborate, whether it be digitally or in person, or is this a year-round initiative? So this is a 20-week program, and you're lucky today because actually we are right now, uh, the application process is open. The deadline to apply for Ocean Bridge is August 28th, so it's right now, and we are looking for 35 people from the Atlantic region to apply. It's a very easy online form uh, that you can do, uh, again, by going to our website, ocean.org. So we invite you to uh, to do so. I appreciate the time this morning for telling us about Ocean Bridge, and uh, good luck with it. Thank you very much, Patty, and thank you for having us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Melissa. All right, bye. bye. It's Melissa Aguilera, Ocean Bridge Manager Atlantic with Ocean Wise. The issue regarding, and some people get caught up in some of the plastic conversation with the so-called single-use plastic bag, but somewhere in the neighborhood, 40% of plastics are single-use designations anyway. Then you know the year about bans on plastic cutlery and straws and those types of things. The fact of the matter there is, not just an eyesore with an old Dominion bag blown up against the fence. The plastics that end up in the ocean, somewhere... Well, there's dozens of tons. It's just in Canada. In Canadian waters, ends up in the, in the water. And so it is not just about the eyesore and seeing it wrapped around the neck of a gull or a leatherback turtle. It's actually broken out of the point where it's part of deep-sea sediment. It's part of the food chain. I mean, we're finding plastic in seabirds. We're finding plastics in other marine life, many of which we eat. So just think about it. The plastic that was unnecessary with a single wrap cucumber to a Power Ranger that's got about 10 pounds of uh, plastic encompassing the Power Ranger. Then you talk about going to, your buddy talk about CBD oil. Go buy some regulated cannabis at a store, get three grams inside, but 18 grams worth of plastic packaging. We're just on the wrong track. It's in the food chain. That's all anyone should know. It doesn't matter what your political leanings are. We're eating plastic because we've got millions of tons of it going into the water. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Well, let's go. We're almost back to school. Nobody wants to hear it, but that's the reality of life. Join us on line number two is the president at the NLTA. That's the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association, Trent Langdon. Trent, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good to speak with you again. Nice to have you on. So whether or not people like it, September the 6th, which I believe is the first day of school, is literally yeah. around the corner. Before we get yeah. back to getting back in the classroom, one of the concerns that I have, and I would imagine many families have, is just how many homeroom teachers, substitute teachers, support staff have been hired and are in place. Because there's nothing more frustrating than coming to the first day of school. Someone comes home and says, well, who's your homeroom teacher? We don't have a permanent one yet. So where are we with placement? 
Right, exactly. And so as we head back, it's an exciting time for everybody, especially our, our new faces, new kids, our kindergartners and stuff. So it's, it's an exciting time. But as we've said for, for a long time now, Patty, is the hidden reality right now that our, our schools are struggling to stay open. And uh, we're not like emergency rooms in that if, if there's no doctor that they're going to shut it down. Uh, ultimately redeployment, ultimately uh, a reduction in service. Uh, we're hearing uh, most recently, uh, I, I can't confirm it 100%, but I'm hearing stories of courses not happening in certain schools because there's no one to teach the course and so on. And that, that's heavy for a parent to hear. Uh, and as an association, we want to offer a top-notch service to all the children that we uh, that we service. Uh, and uh, and right now, if you've got to reduce service, and, and we know as, as teachers that we're, we're feeling the pinch anyway, as I said, with redeployment, uh, with losing our preparation time, with doubling up of classes that the these these services that we typically would be able to offer aren't being there so we're hearing it right away that there's there's uh, that worry is out there how does it complicate things because i know operational issues are not necessarily the day-to-day go-to issues for the minister responsible but when you've had a shift and a transition to a new minister now crystalline howell as the minister of education yep. does yep. that complicate back to school it, it does complicate to a degree, and I'll give her credit in that she's been very open to speaking and, and is, uh, is a very uh, collegial response so far. So I'll give her that. But the difficulty the association has had is this is the third minister that I've been dealing with in the two years that I've been here. And that, that's worrisome in that I always have to bring a new, a new person up to speed. Um, I, I want to give uh, this minister every opportunity to, to step up and realize that there's significant issues in this province. Um, and it's not even uh, that it's a, it's a one-size-fits-all <clears throat> Issues that we're seeing here in metro versus rural, <clears throat> excuse me, versus isolated. Uh, Labrador itself needs to be treated as a, as a separate entity because it's very unique. Uh, the rural and urban, uh, those themselves are, are different. Uh, the size of this province, <clears throat> excuse me, is difficult to, to meet all the needs. So what I would like from this minister is, is, is an acknowledgement of all the needs that are out there. We're actually meeting uh, with her today. and uh, But also, let's, let's hang our hat on some uh, specific decisions that are going to actually respond to the shortages that are out there. Parents need to know there's uh, distinct shortages in school which are impacting programming and um, in the end it's the children and the families that are hurting because the working conditions that we're facing translate into the families when we have the opportunity to use seniority to decide where you like to work and that's nature of the way the organization is set up does that mean certain regions specifically labrador might be on the outside looking in so do we have real focus areas of shortages and the inability to find enough teachers i imagine we do well, yeah, and so, uh, you know, the Labrador West most recently, I'm hearing that there's there's distinct issues. It, it, it's a big issue from multiple, or I should say there's multiple variables that are coming into place there. Housing is a huge issue in, in a lot of different areas. Uh, even in Clarenville, I heard from a young teacher who's looking for a place to live in Clarenville of all places, uh, let alone Lab West where housing is at a premium. It's uh, it's uh, the cost of living in a lot of these isolated and rural areas. It's, it's uh, um, uh, the allowances that go with living in northern and remote areas. Uh, it's uh, it's the quality of life that people are looking for. You know, some people want that adventure. They want they don't necessarily need all the amenities of living in an urban area. So, uh, but when you talk about just the basics of being able to find an apartment in in uh, in areas that are uh, typically easy to find places, uh, and and the associated costs of living, let alone when we're talking about uh, part time positions, we have positions out there point zero eight of a position. Who in their right mind, uh, especially a young teacher coming out at, at the bottom of the 
grade in terms of salary can afford to take a point zero eight position and hope they get sub time. You know, it's um, the, the setup is not conducive to a system that is uh, is going to support students where they need to be, which is a full fledged teaching uh, regimen uh, and and uh, team at, at the front of the classroom. Okay, let's get back into the classroom. You know, sometimes we try to help promote block the bus or neighbors in need or bridges to hope because we know if uh, families were struggling last year to be able to afford back to school and it's not just a geometry set it's it's everything that issue like we've even heard stories where families who were providers last year were offering up support to other families who are now on the needy list it's not just the price tag it's actually what happens when you get in the classroom i mean as the husband of a teacher i know in no uncertain terms and i have no problem with it i've bought things for the classroom and yeah, that, I yeah. think, is very much commonplace. But talk about what it might mean for actually evaluating the day-to-day curriculum. You're sitting home with your planning guide and knowing that you've got a disparity in the classroom and thinking, I can't even do this activity. Why? Because 15% of the classroom don't have the materials required. Is that common? Oh, more, more, more than people would think. And uh, in a day and age where every single person in society is having to look at their uh, at their pay stub and say, okay, what do I need to cover? I, to be honest with you, I'm fortunate. I can, I can walk into a store and I can say, look, I need something. I'm going to be able to get it. And I'll be up front and saying that. But there's a lot of families out there. Uh, what was once considered middle class is uh, a lot of people are questioning, can I afford these things? But to go back to your initial question, uh, we're talking about families that uh, uh, may not even know where their next meal is coming from, if they can pay, you know, with, with the cold season coming up, if they can pay their heat bill. Um, so uh, back-to-school items may not be prioritized. Plus, throughout the year, schools, uh, administrators and teachers, they try to minimize the expectations. Um, years ago, I know being in school, would not uncommon to say, oh, look, there's a um, uh, sponsor us in this, or send in $10 if you want. Schools are trying to limit that because they know the majority of, of people and families can't bring that in. So just to say, for example, your question was related to doing a science project, and they're encouraged to bring in, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, a, a board for for putting their display on their science project. Even things like that, display boards or science project materials, they're they're expensive. Little, even if you're talking about dollar store materials, that families just don't have it. So as a result, teachers are having to adjust their curriculum. They're having to do demonstrations. They're having to um, bring in their own materials, uh, recycle things, which is fine. But in the end, uh, many times either projects don't get done or things have to be adjusted uh, or teachers pay out of pocket and that's a very common thing I, I did it myself and teachers especially prior elementary teachers they're bringing in all the time uh, to make things work in their classrooms and a lot of money is being spent when we talk you know it's one thing on that front and I know it to be real personally when you hear from I would imagine teachers regarding the state of their school how big a conversation is whether it be I, I work and teach at uh, Frank Roberts High or I'm a teacher in Paradise Disappointed or I'm down in the Cove or I'm teaching at PwC does the infrastructure conversation bleed into much what you deal with day to day absolutely you know we, we have deep concerns about different facilities around this province uh, we know full well that uh, the school districts are evaluating where new schools need to go it makes logical sense for CBS to have a, have a new building uh, I know Frank Roberts Jr. High out there uh, you know extensive work has been done between our association and, and the staff there uh, with the uh, you know the building they're in there's there's an issue with roads there's an issue with uh, with plumbing there's an issue of of, uh, of uh, damage being done in the past that hasn't truly 
absolutely been rectified. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if facilities management is, is being organized and done in this province in a way that meets the needs or the, uh, the most emergent needs that are in these, in these various areas because... Uh, you know, obviously, any area that gets a new building, if you're talking Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, you know, that's a bonus for that area. But I, I, I'm not necessarily a believer that that's where the money is best spent right now when when the needs are quite obvious. And and parents are speaking out, and that's what we need, parents to be vocal. And uh, teachers certainly know where the need is. Uh, and uh, I'd like nothing more than to walk into a new building and start teaching. But uh, when you're talking about numbers and you're talking about uh, obvious needs of, of replacements in certain areas, such as Frank Roberts out in, in Foxtrap, uh, and little, I mean, got into Labrador and Menahek and different schools like that that are at older buildings. Uh, it's and no doubt it's a heavy thing to try and meet all those needs, but there's obvious answers I think that need to be addressed first. You want to give us a couple of quick examples before I ask you one more question? Uh, related to what? What do you mean? Exactly? You know, the the focus areas that, as opposed to bricks and mortar, that might need uh, more quick or short-term attention. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's uh, in terms of, of overall, we're, human resourcing is, is where we are. But it, as I said, in terms of the facilities, uh, Frank Roberts, uh, Labrador, those are the issues that we, we want to see addressed. But uh, when it comes to, to monies being put into the system, there needs to be a comprehensive plan as to how we're going to address the, the shortages. Uh, if there needs to be incentivization uh, to get some of these teachers back into uh, into these uh, uh, some of these areas, there needs to be an education program. We need to get some of our high school students to actually focus on becoming teachers rather than just presuming uh, that they're going to fall into education. Um, education is a very positive and a, and a very rewarding profession. I don't regret one bit going into it, and I'm looking forward to going back into the system in a couple of years when I'm done with being president. So it's uh, And people need to realize that, but I don't think necessarily government is doing enough to incentivize and to, and to make uh, young people want to. We want those Cracker Jacks in our classroom. Last one, and this is not just about one virus or another, but with RSV or COVID or the common cold or air quality period. I remember doing air quality stories back when I was on Out of the Fog. So this is not new, and this is not about the pandemic. This is about simple air quality, which is better for teachers, administrators, staff, and students. Do we know if there's a formal air quality testing regime, not just in, say, Frank Roberts because of some mold being reported, what have you? Is, is, it, an, is it an ongoing issue? Are the systems that we ordered, sole source, are they working like they're intended to? Give us an air quality update because this is not new. This right. is not about COVID. I've been talking about this based, you know, yeah, well, you're right. 2010. Right, exactly so, and, and through my career as well, it's uh, it, it varies from from uh, building to building, and even when air quality has been uh, has been tested in various uh, facilities, there's still question marks because we have a lot of teachers that are struggling with with their with asthma that normally they don't do so at home, uh, and and they're getting those kinds of feelings when they're walking through. So ultimately, in our uh, conversations with government and with the school districts, is that we've been told that there's there's regular air quality checks if there's one particular area that there's, it it's, has become worrisome related to, again, whether it's been some flooding and some mold, uh, that the air quality checks are done. We, we keep being told that that is the case, uh, but we keep hearing from members, too, that there's been no change in their health, and that's the worrisome piece. When we meet minimum standards of health, to me, fair enough. You know, there are minimum standards in this country, but when we're talking about students and young people in those classrooms, it's not like you're in there for an hour each day. You're talking five, six, seven hours a day, uh, uh, every day of the work week. Um, this is where kids are living. In many time, many ways, they're spending just as so much time in school as home. So it's not just about teachers, it's about the students too. They are breathing this day in, day out. So when we're meeting minimum standards, in my mind, that's not good enough. It needs to be optimum um, air quality in these buildings. And we're relying right now on 
beyond. Uh, and what worries me the most is many times we're we're relying on the wind open some more windows uh, the <laughs> the movement of air through these many of these very old buildings is is, is terrible at best uh, and uh, air filtration systems that are in place they need to be updated they need their their filters clean regularly so it's uh, it's it's quite the battle and I do know teachers are, are very worried about air quality in their buildings should we consider the blending of the Newfoundland Labrador English speaking school district into the Department of Education complete not at all. Not at all. It's uh, if anything, uh, I, I will give credit where credit is due. The district and, and government are keeping us informed as to how things are moving. Uh, we've been told that uh, bottom line, uh, the schools and administrators, teachers, and students should see no real changes on the ground. Uh, the majority of it is going to happen at the upper levels, uh, and we've always been advocating for the fact that uh, any money saved has to go back into education. That it should not be uh, redistributed to some other uh, department per se. So, um, uh, what we've been told so far is it's. Continuing, uh, continuing on, it's about movement of, of upper-level staff to different areas, uh, into, into government, for example, IT at the district level, into IT at the government level, so those types of things. And uh, But, yeah, we're, we're being kept up to speed on that. And uh, But as for it being complete, no, not, not to our knowledge at this point. Appreciate the time this morning, Trent. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care, everybody. That's NLTA President Trent Langdon. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about what's shaking at the rooms and then an update on the War Memorial Project or thoughts coming from a caller online for it. Don't go away. Oops. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Sigmund to the Acting Director of the Art Gallery Museums and Visitor Experience at the Rooms. That's Kate Wolforth. Good morning, Kate. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? Oh, great. We had a really busy summer here at the Rooms. Has it been? That was the first question, because obviously there's lots of outdoor activity and the weather's pretty good until the most recent stretch, so it's been busy. We've had a lot of people coming in this week because it's been super rainy and we've had a couple of cruise ships in, so we've had a really, really good summer here. So it's one thing to talk about what goes on inside the rooms, but in the world of tourism, like you mentioned the cruise ships, what kind of relationship do you have with the receiving group on the dock at the uh, at the harbor in St. John's and or with the concierges or front desk operators in the different hotels? Because the guests will come up and say, what should I do? Cape Spear, Signal Hill, where does the rooms fall in? I think where we're so visible, a lot of people are curious about about what we are, and uh, we're often a first stop for people wanting to find out about more about the province. And uh, we're really proud to, that people come here, learn about the province, and then go out and discover more. So that's that's how we see our role. And um, certainly, you know, we don't need to tell people where we are because you can see us from everywhere in the city, which is great. A hundred percent. And you know, what was once referred to in very unkind terms seems to have blended nicely to the uh, to the sight lines and the landscape. Uh, so when people come this summer what are they seeing? Uh, so we're, we have a couple of new shows here that uh, people are really enjoying. One is called Tying the Knot, and it's looking at weddings in Newfoundland Labrador right back to the mid-1800s till present day, and people are really enjoying looking at all the different styles and how weddings have changed over the, the last century and a half. So that's been really popular. And uh, another show that we just opened last week is called Fantastic Finds, and it looks at archaeology in the province. Um, I know there have been some really popular uh, or well-known finds recently, including that gold coin that was discovered from the 1400s. And uh, so we have that on display, along with a lot of other um, artifacts that have been excavated by archaeologists across the province uh, over the last few decades. But there are some really interesting recent finds as well that are presented. Well, there's tons of ongoing archaeological digs in the province at this very moment. 
Indeed, yeah. So one of the purposes of the exhibition, one of the reasons we wanted to do it was to show all the great work that's being done by professional archaeologists in the province. And again, like we see our role as um, really show, showcasing what you can go out and see. So we profile cupids, so people can go see active digs there and also at Fairland. And those are just two of the active dig sites that people can explore. So you get a taste of the rooms, then go out and explore more. Yeah, like the Colony of the Avalon is pretty much a public dig. It is it's super interesting. You never know what what people are going to be, uh, what the archaeologists there are going to be uh, excavating. And uh, Cupid's is the same. So it's really exciting for people to go out there and see what uh, what the archaeologists are at. And talking about, you know, things you can see and do real-life experiences outside of the rooms and you guys pointing them in the right direction. When my boys went through grade six, there was a student program up there, for instance, working with the folks out at the Wooden Boat Museum and seeing uh, Jerome or anybody working on a punt or a dory or a rodney are some of those programs still in existence um, we, we always have interactive things going on here at the room. So all over the summer, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 2 to 4, um, we have musicians and artists working in our atrium. Those are free programs that people can drop in and see. You don't have to pay admission. And we also have uh, these culture sheds or culture kiosks that you can interact with and play in musical instruments. So no matter what the day or time, the rooms always has something fun and interactive to do for all ages. There's someone coming up who wants to talk about the War Memorial. And one of the exhibits that I thought was really quite poignant and well worth the visit is Beaumont Hamill, the Trail of the Caribou. Is that still a popular destination? Because I would suggest if I'm welcoming someone at the door, that's a must-see. It is. I mean, that is definitely one of our most popular exhibits. It's an exhibit that people come back to again and again because the stories are so rich, they're so varied. And, uh, you know, I've worked here for years, and every time I go through, I find out something new and learn something new. Um, So that is definitely a really popular exhibit that we have, and it's a great way for people to learn about this really important story of our province. It's really tastefully and very well done. Do you continue to add to that exhibit, or are the, the, uh, the glass containers sealed? and the art is what it is and the voiceover is what it is or does it change? Uh, we do have additions to that exhibit as things come up. So I think um, people might remember a couple of years ago the discovery of a soldier, a Newfoundland Regiment so- soldier, whose identity was found. And so some of the uh, the family donated some of those artifacts from that soldier to the rooms. And so those are on display now for people to, to see. And uh, so we do, as things come up, we do make changes for sure. Yeah, because we actually spoke with the archivist Greg Walsh about some of that work and repatriation and how that process works in conjunction with uh, national defense and the federal government. So it's kind of fascinating the moving parts before it makes its way to an exhibit. Exactly, yeah. No, it's all it's all part of the work that we do here at the rooms, for sure. Everyone uh, should absolutely take the time, especially on these overcast, dreary days in particular, but any sunny, glorious day and or a weather-riddled day, it's always worth it. Uh, anything else you want to tell us about this morning, Kate, before we say goodbye? Uh, we just have our last Global Music concert coming up this Sunday at 2 o'clock. That's outside, and uh, we have some lovely musicians who are being presented by us and by Music NL and the Association for New Canadians. So we encourage everyone to come up to that. That's 2 o'clock on Sunday. It's nice to have you on. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Kate Walworth is the room's acting director of our gallery, museums, and uh, visitor experience. Before we get to the news, let's go to 4. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello, caller on line number four. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Is this about the War Memorial? Uh, if that's what you want to talk about, it is. Yes, yes. Uh, I am one of many, many people who like the War Memorial the way it was and who care very much about it. 
there are people there all year visiting that place, including the we miss and we like the skateboarders who are the same age of many of those young men who were killed and who are respectful of the people who are visiting and who do not cause any damage. But there are a lot of us who have many questions. It was described as a little sort of lightweight change. Well, it's turned into a huge construction project. <clears throat> There's now just the statue and three trees left. We care very much about what has happened and what is happening to it. We'd like to know whose idea was it to make all of this change and uh, why is it really appropriate to bring in ashes from that time from those young men? Those young men were about the same age as the skateboarders who are on the uh, at the memorial sometimes, and they would probably be doing that if they were alive and here. And we would like to know whose idea it was to make all of these changes and who's paying for it, and is what is being done is it appropriate we liked it the way it was those are my main points and it is visited i think all year by all kinds of people not just a few thank you i understand uh you know i guess accommodations for the creation of the tomb of the unknown soldier required some sort of work to be done and it gets a national designation designation of course because of the participation of mostly the or most notably the royal newfoundland regiment prior to confederation do you think that it, i know you appreciated it the way it was do you think there was any need for some sort of facelift for something as important as sacred as many people hold it for what well, the aesthetics, I mean, even just to improve or to give a facelift to something that's had very little attention over the years. And I'm glad you said you don't mind the skateboarders down there or you like the skateboarders down there because yes. it's a hub of activity. You needn't just it be is. solemnly strolling through and afraid to make yeah. eye contact or bowing your head. I think that's that's great. It shows a, it shows aliveness. It shows an interest. And no, we did not feel we liked it the way it was. We didn't think there needed to be a facelift. And I hope there will not be. We hope that the design will be the same and that it will be having the same welcoming effect that it has had through the years. And there, there are people visiting in the snow, in the winter, all the time from all walks of life. And it's really, really important to a lot of people. And I think the people who decided to do this re were thinking more about just their own particular interest and not that it's of a place of interest to many people of many generations. I don't know if it was driven by the federal government, the provincial government, the legion. I don't really understand exactly what that hierarchy might look like. Well, we've been told it's the... It's the province, and yet there's been very little information from the provincial people about it. In fact, there's been very, very little information in general about it. And it's a focal point when people come to visit the city and the province. They come here to see it. And it's. I think there's not been enough information given about it to the general public. I'll see and what I, I can... Think I'm sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. I was going to say, I'll see what I can find out for very specifics about who led it, associated cost, who's driving this particular bus. But just a la last personal question before I go. Do you have a personal relationship with the War Memorial, whether it be someone in your family who fought, maybe someone who didn't return home? 
No, I don't. Okay. I do in general. I do in general, but not particularly. I happen to live not too far away from it, and that's important to me that I see it and I see the people who come there, and uh, it's just part of the community. It's part of the city. It's part of the province. It's part of our history. I appreciate you making time for the program. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, there we go. Uh, let's take a break for the newscast. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? Well, we come back plenty of time to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the atmospheric scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. That's Jeff Weber. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you for having me today. Happy to have you back on. So we know they're already tracking some storms in the Atlantic Basin. What's the forecast look like? Um, let me start by saying, you know, when we see these types of predictions of forecasts for hurricane season, because it's not, we're not just talking about weather forecasting now, we're talking about the politics of weather, which must be extremely frustrating as an atmospheric scientist. Um, yeah, but the politics of weather are, are never fun to deal with. We like to deal with the science and what we are presented with in the real world. Um, this, uh, this uh, Atlantic hurricane season uh, proves to be very exciting. Uh, the Atlantic basin is hotter than it's ever been in recorded history, and so we are expecting quite a bit of activity. Uh, the only thing to counter that is that we're uh, into an El Nino year, which prevents, uh, provides a lot of shear in the Atlantic basin, which is kind of keeping some of these hurricanes at bay presently. But uh, as you've noticed in the past week, things have started to pop up quite rapidly. Okay, so just talk one more, uh, one more little bit. Elaborate on the impact and the how El Nino might play into counterbalancing what is the forecast. Right. When we're looking at a hurricane season, there's a few ingredients that, that are very important for us to look at. Um, one of them is the sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic Basin, which I've mentioned is are uh, off the charts and uh, at record heights. Uh, a second thing is whether or not we have disturbances coming off the west coast of Africa or whether we have dry air coming off of the west coast of Africa. Uh, the dry air kind of uh, shuts things down, whereas the moist thunderstorms coming off of the uh, west coast of Africa provide uh, fuel for these storms. And then the third thing is the uh, atmospheric environment, what we call shear, the, the directions of the winds blowing in that Atlantic basin. And in an El Nino year, it rapidly increases the westerly flow. And that westerly flow tends to destroy the circulation of these uh, tropical systems in the Atlantic Basin. It, it tears them apart and prevents them from growing up into being uh, big uh, tropical systems. So, what is your group looking at? And, you know, for starters, when we talk about above normal or normal or below normal, is it simply based on historical averages of the number of storms, whether they be that reach hurricane status or landfall as post-tropical storms? What's normal mean? Um, I, so... Normal is, 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 is a statistical average, a climatolo climatological average over the past 30 years. And so when we say above normal, we're expecting things to be, the ingredients to be there for us to have a, an above normal season. So either above normal sea surface temperatures or increased activity off the west coast of Africa or a very nice uh, atmospheric condition without shear for these systems to develop. Um, these prognostications begin all in the winter months, and we're looking at precipitation in Western Africa, and we're looking at the general circulation, and we're also looking at whether or not El Nino is developing. And so after three fairly strong La Ninas in a row, the transition to El Nino is, is rather dramatic. And quite frankly, without an El Nino occurring, 
this year, I suspect we'd probably have about another five or seven hurricanes already in place. So if you use the Sapphire Simpson hurricane wind scale, which of course only takes into the wind speed, how do you extrapolate and or articulate what you forecast the upcoming season to look like? Because it doesn't take in storm surges or tornadoes or rainfall in a period. So how do you use the hurricane wind uh, scale and talk about what the severity of what might be named storms or major hurricanes? Right. And so as I'm sure uh, many, many of your listeners have experienced, oftentimes it's not the wind so much that does the damage with these systems. It's the storm surge or the uh, large amount of rainfall. And so when we're looking at the categories, which is, as you mentioned, solely based on wind speeds, we can get proxies for what we expect storm surges to be by these, these wind speeds. For example, a Category 1 uh, hurricane will have much less of a storm surge than a Category 5. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in regards to societal impacts and, and how these systems will impact coastal communities and, and those, uh, those societies. But uh, as of now, it's kind of pedestrian when we look at just wind speeds, but we're looking at ways to better inform the community on, on other impacts that these storms will bring. You know, I live on an island, and so the vast majority, even if you look at North America and population density, we're on the coast. You know, by and large, there's heavy coastal populations. Preparations for have been working at a glacial pace, I would suggest, for many parts of the continent, certainly many parts of this province. When we talk about preparations, we'll talk about having X amount of food and water and supplies on hand. But when we talk about big or large-scale preparations for coastal erosion, impact of large-scale rainfall, and how quickly the amount of rain falls, I mean, what is actually pragmatically things can be done on the ground? I mean, I don't imagine there's much could be done and in for the impact of this hurricane season, for what are some of the big things that we should be thinking about? Right. You know, as we go into the future in, in a warmer planet, uh, these systems will, will carry more water, which means the rainfall will be significantly uh, more pronounced. And so the infrastructure inside cities will need to be improved, maybe even doubled in capacity. Um, as far as coastal erosion, we have some fairly... Uh, old methods where you, you put up barriers or uh, seawalls. Um, quite frankly, there is no silver bullet. And, and as the sea levels continue to rise and as these systems continue to be stronger, um, quite frankly, the best choice might be to move inland. Uh, I just don't know how much fortification we can do along our shores and our coastlines, especially in the longer term with, with, uh, with sea level rise, how we can uh, shore up those shores, so to speak, so that they are not heavily impacted by these increasingly intense storms. Let's talk about the accuracy of forecasting because it is an imperfect science and things can change and storms can change their track. But when you're talking about the number of named storms or major hurricanes over the last whatever time frame is appropriate, five years, 10 years, the accuracy of your organization. Right. Um, these long-term forecasts have a little bit more variability than, than the specific forecasts that we make for individual hurricanes. Uh, the seasonal forecasts are still... Um, as much of an art as it is a science. Um, individual hurricanes, there's been a, a tremendous advancement in both intensity and track forecasts to the point where uh, the track forecasts are probably within uh, 20 miles three days out. And so the individual hurricane forecasting has, has been incredibly improved over the past couple of decades, whereas these seasonal forecasts, there is such a large degree of variability and as I had mentioned earlier, there's almost a, an art to it. You know, you, you can look at all the facts, but there, there's, there are so many nuances and subtleties that um, sometimes a gut feeling also weighs into these uh, seasonal forecasts. 
very last one, and you know, I know you've made mention of this many times so far, but really, what does the impact of warmer sea temperatures, have we changed the way we measure sea temperatures? Is it all about surface or is it below surface? What's changed in the way we measure? Well, we continue to measure sea surface temperatures, which are still uh, surface measurements. But what uh, tends to be more dramatic for these tropical systems is what we call ocean heat content. And that uh, gives us a value of, of temperature at depth as well, because as these systems come over the waters, they'll churn up that surface and bring cooler water up if, if cooler water is available, and that will shut down a system. But if there's dramatic heat at depth, even as these systems come over, they're churning up still hot water, which allows them to continue to develop. 26 uh, degrees Celsius is the, the threshold that allows to support tropical convection. And so we look at the depth of that 26 degree Celsius isotherm, and if it goes down deep, we know that it can support not just one hurricane, but uh, can support additional hurricanes over that, as well as allow them to intensify over time. Uh, final thoughts to you, Jeff, before we say goodbye. Yeah, I, I'd watch out for Franklin. Um, <laughs> Franklin's bubbling down the Caribbean. Um, it is forecast to race by uh, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia at the end of the month, uh, around the 30th or the 31st, and it could be rather intense at that point in time. So um, we have a lot of what I would call zonal flow, I mean, uh, meridional flow. Zonal flow is east to west, meridional flow is north to south. And for the summer, we have a lot of north-south flow. And so these tropical systems down the Caribbean, you know, this one's going to kind of ride the Bermuda High and race right up the east coast of the U.S. and, and come into uh, – Eastern Canada. So watch out around August 30th, August 31st for Franklin. I expect it to intensify and race up the coast. Does Gert look like it's going to track further east? Pardon me? It does Hurricane Gert look like it's going to fa uh, track much further east? Because I see the track for Franklin looks like, you know, initial Atlantic Canadian uh, landfall somewhere maybe in the Halifax area or that portion of Nova Scotia. How about Gert that I see out there on the, on the radar as well? Yeah, I, I think GERT is, uh, is no longer a system, and we don't need to worry okay. about GERT. But there are um, two other disturbances in the Atlantic Basin to keep an eye on, but uh, I'd be watching Franklin. I appreciate the time as usual. Jeff, thanks for this. Thank you, Penny. You have all a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Jeff Weber, atmospheric scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Let's take a break. When we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Paul, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Penny, I called your show there a couple of months ago about the food banks in town. Uh, the last three or four months I've been going to the food banks. Uh, I phoned in on one particular day and uh, <clears throat> about the food bank that I was going to here on Topsail Road for the first time, St. Vincent's de Paul. Um, and when I went to uh, go back again the following month, they told me that they had heard about my references to some of the food being uh, expired that they hand out. And, and they told me to go... Don't come here. Go to the Salvation Army from now on. And this is what they told me. So uh, I left it at that. Now today I called this morning. Uh, I've only got. I'm not calling a program to get anything from anybody, but I've only got a pack of noodles in the house. That's all I have. I phoned them for help, and it was the same thing. Go to the Salvation Army. They said that I missed one uh, appointment that they had made for me to go in. But the appointment that they made for me to go in, Patty, was I had to go in at I had to be in at 9:10 in the morning, and I got the call at 8:30, and I couldn't get transportation to get out there. So I called today and asked them and told them I needed to. Well, my friend called on my behalf, and they said no, Paul Adams. They said Paul Adams, nope, go to the Salvation Army. So I just hung up and left it at that. But the only reason I'm calling is because Patty, 
there, there. I need, I do need transportation. I can't get out there. But, but for a food bank to turn somebody down, just be, and it all stems from the fact that I did call, and and re- re- make reference. You probably remember about some of the food being expired, and that's all I did. But I, I but I've had experience with other food banks the same way. I, I wasn't picking on them, but I guess they heard the call I made, and since then that they're barring me from going in there because of that call. And this is what it boils down to, Patty. And they're, and they're like maybe a 10-minute drive from where I'm at. But they t- they said, nope, go to the Salvation Army. I mean, to me, there's something. And I was never rude to the people. I was only in there once, Patty. And that was maybe two or three months ago when I went in for the very first time. And uh, I, t- I tried today just to get in because I have nothing. And they said, no, go to the Salvation Army. So that's not... You know, there's something wrong there, Patty. If I was rude to people, yes. But just because I phoned your program, mentioning about some of the food being expired, which it was up to a year or two old, they don't want me there anymore, Patty. And, uh, again, because I missed one one uh, uh, appointment they had me down for, I couldn't get in on time because I, I couldn't get the transportation, and they're barring me from going in. And, and they told me to go to the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. And how, how the heck am I going to get out there if I can't even get a 10-minute drive out the road? So now, because of my friend, she's hoping to get paid today. She's going to be bringing me in some stuff today. But for a food bank to do that, somebody petty is sad. They, they, uh, the truth hurts. I wasn't being, I wasn't picking on them in particular. But I don't know if you remember. It was a few months ago, and right after I called your, you, another man phone from Marystown said the same thing. They're giving out food that's expired, not just the tin food, Patty. That's okay. That can last for a couple of months. But like bread. Stuff you put in your freezer, a year, two years old. Patty, did anybody ever call in? I know, I think you were trying to get Dave to call, get somebody to call into your show from the food banks to try to explain why they do that. Did anybody ever get back to your show after, like, yeah, we had a conversation. Why they do that, though, Patty? Well, we had a conversation where they say they try their level best. This one group that we talked to about to try not to give out things that are no longer any nutritional value or have gone bad, and they even ask people making donations to be mindful of that when they look into their own cupboard or into their fridge or into their pantry. So I'm not, I'm not going to say anything about how the food banks have handled your criticism. All I'm going to say before we go is that the food banks are only trying to help people. They're not trying to hurt people. They're not. They're an unfortunate reality that... They're hurting me. They're barring me because they called your show. Well... And that's the God's truth. I was never rude to anybody in there. I only went once... And one point, one appointment I couldn't make, and they said, you can't come in anymore. You're barred. Go to the Salvation Army. But, I mean, that's that's not a way to treat somebody. I mean, I needed help. And that's that's not help. That's, you know... And like I say, this happened to like two or three months ago. For you know, the, uh, when they told me originally go to the Salvation Army, but today I was so desperate I had to try to call them. And as soon as I told my name, nope, go to the Salvation Army. But that's poor service, right? So I, I'm here nothing with nothing. My friend gets paid tonight. Hopefully, I'll have something. And you know, I, I got to hang up, me buddy, because I'm getting all upset. Well, I hope no you way do. to treat people, Patty. It's no. I mean, I, I didn't do nothing wrong. People reference things about problems they have all the time. Anyway, I don't mean to get like that, Patty, but, but it's wrong. What St. Vincent Paul did to me on top of the road is wrong. I need help, and I can't get it from them. So thank God for my friends. Well, hopefully your friend comes through tonight, and I hope you do indeed get what you need today. I wish you good luck. Okay. Sorry, Patty. Take care. No worries. Good luck, Paul. Take care. Uh, I'm not going to sneak on another call before we get to the news, but look, I mean, we've talked about... 
whether it be for potential donors, and demand is up and donors are down. So, you know, people at food banks, food bank operators, they gently remind people to please do indeed consider what you're donating, as opposed to put extra burden on them to sift through what can indeed be given to their clients. And every, I mean, I can imagine that the food bank operators, you know, to a man, to a woman, are not trying to hurt people. If there's food that's less than desirable going out the door, that's not great. And hopefully the food bank operators are attentive to it, as are the donors to the food banks. We do know that the constant is going to be the reality for the foreseen future. The demand is way up, and the donations are way down. That's a recipe for disaster. Let's take a break for the news on time. When we come back, we're going to talk about the unscripted festival. What's that? We'll find out. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the owner and operator of the Anchor Inn Hotel. That's Wilmar Hartman. Good morning, Wilma. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Good. Tell us about the Unscripted Festival. Well, the Unscripted Festival is in its ninth year here in Twellingate. And coming up, it's uh, on the 21st to the 24th uh, of September. So, uh, you know, a few weeks away. And uh, before I forget, I want to say any information I might forget to say this morning, our website is unscriptedfestival.com. So if I miss anything or if you're not sure what I'm saying this morning, always check back unscriptedfestival.com. It's a four-day celebration of digital arts and music and food and generally just a great time in Twillingate when uh, everything is still beautiful. It gets a little slower here. Um, so we say to folks, come and explore our beautiful uh, outdoors. Um, you know, berry picking, the hills are alive. And uh, there's good music and food. So we create a celebration around digital art. We have photographers, digital creators, uh, filmmaking, uh, you know, newer technologies like uh, artificial intelligence that we are uh, playing with, um, some photo orienteering, few workshops. And, um, you know, it's something for everyone. Uh, It's not something for uh, specialists. So we always say from 9 to 19, sorry, 9 to 90, uh, as long as you have a curious mind and you love exploring and learning new things. Uh, yeah, so uh, we're inviting folks to, to Twillingate this fall. Just out of curiosity, how are you dabbling with uh, artificial intelligence? Well, this year we have a workshop by uh, James March. Uh, James is a professor at Sheridan College. He's a Newfoundlander by birth, and he's in Toronto right now. But he comes back every year, or has been, because he always has a new topic for us. And this year, he's going to take folks out uh, on the island and, uh, you know, help us explore. Uh, he says, explore your boundless creativity with artificial intelligence. Um, so, you know, he's going to show us what I suspect apps or technologies can do, mostly by phone, uh, smartphone-based, and teach us new ways to uh, capture our environment using artificial intelligence. 
I'm not sure of exact details, but that's why I'm, you know, like others, keen to take part in the workshop, hopefully, and see what it brings, because that's leading-edge technology that's going to impact all our lives in some way or another, if not already. A absolutely. And, you know, I won't go too deep into AI right now speaking with you, but there's going to be some fun and uh, very helpful, informative applications, and some maybe not so much. So the, you know, how to utilize it and what to look out for, I think are going to be big parts of the conversation going forward and everyone will like a bit of music when they go to these types of festivals i do know having read some of it so the split peas which are from your region also another twilling gate native i believe jared waterman sherman downey who i love is also going to be on hand the beautiful ugly sticks are going to be there so there's a little bit of a dollop of different type of music for folks as well so that's always helpful that's right. We start with a kitchen party, and of course, the split peas is iconic here in our region. They don't actively perform regularly as they used to in the summer anymore. So this is a rare opportunity to see them open for those um, beautiful ugly sticks, and it's going to end up being one fine kitchen party on the first uh, opening night. And who doesn't love that? And I shouldn't leave out people. Shelley May, Adam Baxter. Then you've got a variety of chefs on hand, including Rory McPherson, McPherson and Sean Hussey. I'm not sure for anybody else. This is just based on what I read in an email a little earlier today. That's right. On I mean, the Friday night, we, we did it last year and it was such a success. Uh, we have a big celebration in the tent at our local hospital pond. It's a really beautiful park with a trail around the pond. And uh, we have a tent pitched, and this year we have a selection of top, top chefs. Of course, Rory McPherson is a legend in this province, uh, Sean Hussey, Michelle LeBlanc, and then we've got Christopher Mercer, Steve Quinton, and then our local uh, CTV uh, cross-country cake-off uh, baker, a winner, um, Catherine Sansom, who will be on the dessert side of the night's food. And of course, as you said, Shelby May and Adam Baxter will be performing. So that's a lovely community event. I mean, last year we had the tent fold, food was good. And then at the end, folks walked around the pond as the sun set to kind of walk off all the sins of dessert and food. Um, but uh, it is a lovely family event, and those tickets sell out really fast. Um, the tickets are available online now, and if anyone wants to join us that Friday evening, I wouldn't wait too long. I'm sure. I mean, Twilligate is quite an attraction in and of itself. And so the website is really quite simple. It's unscriptedfestival.com. Before I let you go, I've heard stories from your community and I've seen pictures and videos from the community. Twillingate is absolutely on wheels this summer. It has been incredibly busy. We are so, so, so thankful for everyone who makes the trip to Twillingate. We always say we don't have accidental visitors here. We're at the, long, at the end of a long road, so it's something that people plan for. And we know it's not a cheap trip for people who come from away, and we appreciate everyone who chooses Twillingate. And we, you know, as a community, we've always worked incredibly hard to make it worth people's uh, money and the time they take to come and visit us. Uh, it's a very hospitable community, and uh, we love our visitors. And, of course, um, visitors are not always from away. We, you know, we are so thankful for people who make the trip from St. John's and from other communities. We've seen since, uh, the, since COVID, we've seen an increase in local travel, which we absolutely appreciate. It's great to, to welcome our uh, fellow Newfoundlanders here as well. And you know, hopefully for the Festival of September, same thing that we won't disappoint. Really appreciate you making time, and Good luck with the festival. Nice to have you on, Wilbur. Betty, thank you so much. Have a great day. The very same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Elaine, you're on the air. 
Hello. Hi there. Oh, I'm on the air. You are on the air. I am calling. The gentleman called about the food bank, about expired dates. Um, just because it's expired doesn't mean it can't be used. Of course not. It, it's best before. Yeah, and I... I have plenty oh, of expired things. I have bottles uh, of moose meat, 2019, pickles, 2019, chows, things in the freezer from two years, maybe three years. If it's in the freezer, it's still in good shape. It should be. You can indeed get freezer burn, which makes something very unappetizing. Doesn't mean it's going to make you sick. It just might mean it's a little bit well, off. You cut, you cut the freezer burn off. Yeah, you can. That's right. You, yeah. you can cut off what you can see. I mean, I talk about this all the time. The expiry dates has led lots of people to throw away food that we can absolutely eat. But, Paul, yeah. if you hadn't heard him prior, it's not just about expiry dates. He has described things that are just totally off, have gone bad. And that can indeed happen to a variety of products, especially perishables. But you're right. And, I mean... Because we throw so much away, and the landfill is the home of 40% of, of the land uh, landfill waste, it's stuff that we can eat. So we've got to figure this stuff out, because I admitted freely, I used to be one of those folks. Best before uh, The best before date, I went with it. It didn't mean expired. Now that I understand it better, I'm quite hesitant to throw things away that I know I can eat. Yeah, okay, carrots. Um, I don't know why here lately, carrots start to go... Uh, moldy, but when you cut the mold off, you still got a good carrot. And then still lots of carrot left, you're right. Yes. And another thing for people that uh, low income net, if they buy a smaller piece of meat and cook with carrot and turnip, barley, whatever, you can make a good stew or a soup. It can go a long way. Absolutely. I'm, for the most part, I'm the cook in the house, and I cook for the Army, so I've got leftovers all the time. Oh, I do, too. Nothing wrong with it. We have some the next night, some goes in the freezer, but, but people don't. A lot of people don't. They see an expired, oh, I'm not eating that. I think you're right. Yeah. But for that gentleman um, to get on like he was, I, I, I don't know what he said. He only had some one thing in the cupboard. Uh, if he went and got, uh, like I said, small piece of meat, turnip, carrot, whatever, and make a soup or a stew and potatoes, it could go a long way for him. Hopefully he's able to come up with the ingredients to do exactly that. I appreciate the time, Elaine. Thank you for well, this helpful it's conversation. A lot cheaper. It's a lot cheaper than if he were out buying canned goods, that type of thing. Absolutely. Appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome, Elaine. Day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Shalom. You're on the air. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, good morning. How's it going? Doing great. You? I'm good. So I'm on the air today to uh, talk about uh, a fundraiser that we're doing from our store 
called uh, 7 to 9 Exclusive, and uh, we're doing a fundraiser for the women's and children's, children's sh- shelter called Kirby House, and uh, we're encouraging people to come and uh, purchase certain sneakers that we have up for auction, and whatever we make from them, we're going to give towards the Kirby House. And uh, apart from that, we're also encouraging people to bring in personal care products, like shampoos, toothbrushes, toilet paper, tampons, along with the receipts. And I know this is I know this is a lot, but uh, it's it's just it's just for the gesture of it because what we're encouraging people to do is bring in the receipts with these products, and we're gonna take a percentage and more off any purchase that they make from the store. And all of this we're gonna give towards the Kirby House. So that's a message I wanted to give to the people. And uh, I hope uh, that people do come and support this cause. The the need at Iris Kirby is is very very real. We've been talking about capacity there, but it's not just a safe lodging. It's all the different amenities and things that you're trying to gather. So, you, you, what store is it? I'm sorry, Shalom, and what sort of products do you sell? So uh, the store is called Seven and Nine Exclusive, and we sell exclusive uh, Jordans and sneakers. So we sell. Jordan 1s, 3s, 4s, and, and things like that, like exclusive uh, vintage sneakers. And uh, so we, we had been looking throughout the summer to, you know, to help out, to give back to the community because the community does support us. And we were like, how can we do this? And uh, one of uh, our workers that works there suggested that, uh, you know, when, when, when they were in need, the Iris Kirby house was, you know, heads over heels to, to protect them and take care of them. So we were like, okay, well, let's do that. Well, I think it's great that you are doing it, and hopefully you get a good turnout and can make a, uh, a big contribution to Iris Kirby. Where are you located? Uh, we're located on Water Street downtown, right across from Boston Pizza. That's 364 Water Street. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for the time, Shalom. Good luck. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Here we go. Iris Kirby, another one of those organizations do incredible work and have an incredible need. Let's go. Line number six. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Thank you, sir. Um, Patty, uh, I could call in, and I, I have called in many times in the past. We've had uh, discussions about you know different uh, issues and concerns that are out there in our province in the community, uh, whether it be issues with uh, affordability for a lot of folks, whether it be issues around uh, lack of family doctors, wait times in hospitals, um, childcare, uh, lack of childcare spaces, and so on. Uh, and those are all important things. And uh, obviously, as an opposition member, it's part of my role to. Uh, bring light to these things and, and hopefully be able to put some pressure on government to uh, address them. But uh, today, uh, because I do try my best uh, to be fair and balanced in my commentary, uh, and so today I just wanted to acknowledge, I guess, uh, a story that was recently uh, in the news as it relates to our province's credit rating. Uh, and uh, I believe it said that it's gone from A- minus to A, gone from uh, stable to positive. Um, and that's obviously a good piece of news. Uh, it goes to show, I think, that uh, 
we are starting to bounce back uh, from COVID and we're getting uh, back on track. I think the story did say the fact that the Muskrat Falls project was now commissioned and uh, and so on uh, did play a role uh, in that credit rating change. But, uh, you know, regardless, I'm sure the government uh, is going to say it's all because of what they did and the opposition will say, well, it had nothing to do with you. But then again, if things were going the other direction, the opposition would say it was the government's fault. So at the end of the day, um, regardless of any of that, I think the point is is that uh, it is a good piece of news. Uh, you sort of couple that with the fact that uh, there was a future fund uh, put in place. So we are starting to see, uh, you know, uh, money be put into that, which, I, I, again, I think is a, a positive move. And even generally throughout the province, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's very easy to be negative and pessimistic because there are no doubt people with uh, challenges, and I raise them all the time. But at the end of the day, uh, I know from a tourism point of view, I was out and about uh, this summer on a bit of a staycation. Uh, she was on wheels out on the West Coast with the cruise ships were in. Uh, out in Gander, she was on wheels, everybody out uh, to see come from away or whatever. Uh, I was out in the Gross Morn and uh, had a job to get a place to stay. So, you know, from a tourism point of view, things are certainly going well. Uh, glad to see Terra Nova, uh, you know, seems like that's getting back on track. A uh, bit disappointed on Bay of the Nord, but that's uh, still, uh, it's still some positive outlooks uh, there as well. And, of course, with all these big projects, the hydrogen projects that are in the hopper, and certainly there's one in your news today about GH2 has, uh, I guess, moved uh, a, a bit closer uh, to getting their project uh, on the go. We look at Argentia and uh, that um, all those windmills now, there are parts that are being sort of uh, shipped down to Argentia, uh, uh, to Argentia to make yeah. its way to the eastern seaboard of the United States. There is a lot of positive things happening. The fact that our credit rating is improving, that means, uh, you know, that we can uh, borrow at lower interest rates. That's more money that can be spent on public services. Uh, I don't mean to do a commercial for the Liberal government. That's not my intent. But I do just want to acknowledge the fact that it's not all doom and gloom. I do believe we have a bright future. And for now, at least, it seems like we're starting to head in the right direction. And I don't care who takes the credit for it. Uh, I'm just glad it's happening. Yeah, I mean... I'm a little bit confused by the credit story, to be honest with you. They talk about the debt trajectory, stabilized, talk about increase in mineral exploration, production, and uh, digital capital investment. But as it pertains to Muskrat, they, I, I don't have the story in front of me, but they said, son, and this is DBRS Morningstar, is yeah. that they deemed the rate mitigation plan to be successful. I'd love to have them on the show to tell me what that means and how they arrived at that conclusion because rate mitigation isn't even settled, whatever rate mitigation actually means. We've had all the caveats about final commissioning, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's with that $5.2 billion high Bernie-related uh, matter. So they might know something I don't know, and I'm all for a, an improved credit rating based on borrowing and what have you, as you point out, but I'm not really sure how they arrived at those conclusions regarding Muskrat because, you know, it's one thing for the property 
province have a credit rating of X or A, pardon me, it's quite another for individuals to absorb what are the coming increases. Not just muskrat, but adding carbon tax and clean fuel regulations and all the rest. I don't really know how they arrived at that conclusion, but I'd love to ask them. Dave, let's, let's do that. Let's see if we can get that group on to talk about how they arrived at this credit rating approval, specifically regarding muskrat. If the debt load trajectory looks stable, if mineral production and capital investment looks good, GDP growth in those areas, fine. But I really need to know more about that hydro implication in the credit rating personally. Yeah, Patty, uh, you're right, and it didn't. And then, of course, the you know it was a very short news story, and it didn't get into any of those details. And and I sort of you know wondered the same thing, uh, and, and I'd like to hear what they have to say as well. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I'm just looking at it from the point of view that regardless of your motivation, the bottom line is is that we have seen. Um, this, I think there's a couple of changes now over the last year or so uh, to the positive. Uh, and so I just think it is positive. And I know sometimes, you know, we look at government, especially when you're looking at your own day-to-day life and you're saying, well, that's not going to get me a family doctor. That's not going to improve my situation in terms of cost of living issues. And it's not. And we got to continue to bring these issues to light and, and fight for improvements. No doubt about it. And I, and I and I'm sure all members of the opposition will certainly do their part in that regard. But at the end of the day, government is not some fictitious entity. At the end of the day, it really is our money, um, and they work for us, and, uh, and, and credit ratings and stuff is important because, uh, it, 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 you know, in terms of being able to uh, borrow money and, and be able to, you know, uh, pay, our, pay our bills and provide public services, all these things are important. So when we see that heading in a positive direction, when we see uh, a lot of, you know, uh, economic development opportunities that are happening or are in the hopper and so on, I think it bodes well uh, for our province uh, in the future. And uh, if things were going negative, I can guarantee you that uh, people would be very quick, uh, probably including myself and other members of opposition, to jump all over government and say that. So when things are starting to look like they're heading in the right direction, I think it's only uh, fair and balanced that we acknowledge that, uh, you know, that there are good things happening as well. It's not all doom and gloom. And hopefully... Um, you know, things will continue down that trajectory and we can get ourselves in a much better place uh, as a province. I appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You Have too. a great day. Bye-bye. Paul Lane, independent member of Mount Pearl Southlands. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.